Okay. Even first service did better than that. And they had like half of the people you have. Let's try again. Good morning. There we go. That's a little better. So my name's Brian Legg, and apparently I am the sketchiest of the bald apostles, according to my daughter. See, it's funny, because I would have labeled Stivey that way, because he's the long-haired hippie in the crew from what he tells us all the time. So uh, I, I don't know. But anyway, so glad that you guys are here, whether you're here in person or you're joining us from home today. We're glad that you are worshiping with us. Um, I hope that you guys are as excited as we are to be back to one service next week at 10 a.m., like he just mentioned to you. All of our Sunday morning ministries will be firing back up and kind of getting back to normal if there is such a thing anymore. Um, but we're moving back to that, and we will even have coffee available. Sounded like Brandon had had his coffee before he did announcements this morning. He was ready to go. So if that's the reason you're watching from home, there's no excuse because you can bring your coffee with you anyway, but next week we'll provide it. So come on, enjoy, and be with us. So you notice the progress happening with the new building? Um, I, I've got to admit, I'm getting really excited. Like this past week, I looked around at some of the things that were happening. They've got all the different rooms framed up, and I was thinking, hmm, maybe I could just take a chair and go and like pick out an office and go ahead and sit and study there. Because if you know anything about my home office, I have a desk that's in like in between the kitchen and the little dining nook in our kitchen area. And then I have three teenage daughters. And so let's just say that even if all the construction was going on, and even if all of our staff was there, that would still be a quieter environment, environment than my house. I'm just saying. I'm excited and looking forward to all that's going to come with the new building. So I hope you guys are too. This morning we're starting a new series, as he mentioned, called Deep Clean. And we're going to take the next five weeks exploring some of the things that I think the only way you could say it are things that turn our lives upside down, and probably not in the best way. And then we're going to talk about how we can overcome those things. And my prayer is really that God will use these next few weeks to do some cleansing and some purification in our own hearts and be preparing us for some of the next steps that we're going to take as a church family. I think God's got some amazing things planned, and he's been speaking some things to our pastor team about this fall and beyond that I want us to be ready for and ready to run with. Very specifically, just a heads up. So next week, our topic is going to be around the idea of, por of pornography. And I want you to know that up front because some of the content that will come with that will be in an adult level. And we want to make sure that if your kids are not already back in TBA Kids, this will be a great Sunday to check that out again and plug them back in. And I want to make sure you're aware before you walk into here. You know, it's one of those subjects that doesn't get talked about enough in the church, needs to be talked about more openly. It's something that needs to be addressed within our culture and even within the church culture. And we want to make sure that we're doing that. So... Today, we're going to dive into a, a struggle that I am confident that every single one of you at some point along the way has experienced. Maybe you're even walking through it right now, or if you're not, I guarantee somewhere down the road in the future, you're going to face it. And that topic or that struggle is shame. So let me ask you this. Have you ever done anything that you're ashamed of? Probably, right? If you think about it a minute, there's probably something that comes to mind. It doesn't take very long. Now, what I forgot to tell you was today's going to be a little bit interactive. So what I need you to do is I need you to grab your phone real quick, take it out, I'm going to give you my phone number, and I'm going to have you text to me what it is that you're ashamed of, and then we're going to play a game. I'm going to go through, and I'm just going to read random texts, and you've got to decide who in the church family sent that. <laughs> so here's what's interesting. Some of you are looking at me like deer in the headlights, like, oh my gosh, no way. Some of you got your phones out and you were like ready to take down my number and send me something. I'm not sure how to feel about that. We will get there later. I'm just kidding, of course. 
But the fact that some of you, as I look around the room, kind of panicked, just goes to show the power that shame holds in our life. Think about it. Shame tells us to hide, to cover up, to protect ourselves. It tells us that we're dirty or bad or unlovable or unwanted or maybe all the above. Shame brings out one of our worst fears, that we will be exposed for who we really are. In other words, the me that only I see and the me that I try to hide from everybody else around me. This feeling of shame can literally be crippling and it can affect every area of our lives, including how we interact with God and how we interact with others. I'd say it's one of the greatest weapons in our enemy's arsenal and believe me, Satan knows exactly how to wield this weapon in our lives. If we were to go around the room and explore every person's experience with shame, I think what we would find is, though our circumstances may be vastly different, the theme of our stories of shame is almost exactly the same. It'd be identical. See, the simple truth is this battle that we're going to talk about today isn't a whole lot different than what we talked about a few weeks ago from Romans 12, where we talked about God transforming us by changing the way we think. And shame, just like that message, is one of those things that distorts our thinking, distorts our perspective. See, way too often we're listening to the lies of the enemy instead of the truth of God's word. And shame is exactly the same. It's a lie of the enemy that distorts our perception and our thinking, causing us to hide from God rather than to run to God. Think about that a second. It causes us to hide from God rather than run to him. And I want to be kind of upfront with you as we dig into this. The truth of the matter here is healing from shame is going to require some risk on our parts. It's going to require that we risk failure, that we risk being hurt, that we risk being rejected, that we risk exposure, people finding out about us. All of those things that scare us and force us into shameful thinking in the first place, we're going to be required to risk those things. We're going to have to make the choice to believe that God is truly who he says he is and he'll do what he says he will do instead of living in the insanity that most of us choose to live in day after day where we keep doing the same thing over and over and over and somehow expecting that things are going to turn out differently. But I'll tell you this, you can heal from shame. I can heal. In Christ, we have power to overcome shame and to live in freedom. We just have to surrender. We've got to surrender those dark places in our hearts that we've been hiding for years. The things that we're scared to death about how somebody might react if they just found out. The things that we're scared to death even how God might react as if he didn't already know. See, even as followers of Christ, while we've made the decision to surrender our hearts, far too many of us have held back some little piece of our heart, some little dark corner that we're kind of hiding away and protecting because we look at it and we say, that's too dark and too dirty for Christ to clean that. We say the common Christian phrases, oh, he, he washes our hearts white as snow and all of our sin is covered by the blood. But yet we don't give him access to that one little corner because it's just too dirty or too broken. I want you to listen to me for a minute. That story that the enemy keeps telling you, the shame keeps speaking to you, that story that you keep telling yourself, that small corner of your heart that you're working so hard to keep hidden, that shameful act that you did or that somebody did to you, whatever it is that makes you think that you're too, far, too dirty, too far gone, too bad for God to fully clean and heal your heart. That's a lie. It is a lie from the pit of hell. 
And I'm preaching to you and me both because the truth is, even after 20 plus years of ministry and seeing God work in amazing, amazing ways, there's still moments that I battle this the same as you battle it. We all walk in this. We're all experiencing this. Satan attacks us all in the same way with this kind of thinking, this distorted thinking. There's still times that I want to hide and cover those ugly places in my heart like we all do, but we don't have to keep living that way. I want to give you a little context for all this as we dive into it. And, and to do that, I want you to go with me all the way back to the beginning of the story. So Genesis chapter 2, there's a little verse tucked away at the very end of chapter 2. is verse 25. And we get this picture of how life was supposed to be before sin messed everything up. God's created the garden. He's created all the animals. He's created people. Everything's perfect. And we see this phrase. Now the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, most of the men in the room read this verse and they go, yeah, that's exactly how it's supposed to be. See, honey, I told you, we should go naked all the time. We can do that, no, no shame, you know, we're just exposed, good deal. But look at the truth of what's said in this statement. Think about it for real, all joking aside. They were naked, they were exposed, they were vulnerable. 100% transparency. And what does it say? They felt no shame. When's the last time that you can think of in life that you felt no shame? None at all. They were walking in perfect relationship, both with God and with each other. They had nothing to be afraid of, nothing to be embarrassed about, nothing to worry about. They felt no shame. But seven verses later, just seven, that seems like a little short thing for you and I. There was a little bit more that happened in the story, but seven verses later, look at what happens as they believe the lie of the serpent and they eat the fruit from the tree that God told them not to eat. Look at how different their responses are. It says, at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. Think about what's happened in the story here. They ate a piece of fruit. They went against God and ate a piece of fruit, but nothing else around them has changed. The garden hasn't changed. The trees haven't changed. Nothing has changed around them. Their bodies didn't change, but their awareness has changed. It says, suddenly their eyes were open and they felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. And when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they did what? They hid from God hid from the Lord God among the trees. Sin had entered the world, and now God's perfect creation is distorted for Adam and Eve. And they felt shame, and they hid from God. And see, I would argue that today is exactly the same for you and me. Our view is distorted. Our sin has caused us to have distorted views of everything around us and we battle shame and we hide from God. Except you and I didn't just eat the wrong fruit. Our list of sins is so much longer and so much worse, right? At least that's the story we tell ourselves. But that's where the problem begins. Because every single one of us have sinned. Every single one of us has fallen short of God's standard. We just talked about this as we studied Romans. Romans 3, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. But that sin is something we've done. It's a choice we've made, a behavior that was wrong, a thought that was destructive. And that sin will lead to our guilt. 
And all of us are guilty. When we don't have Christ, when, we don't, when we're not walking in relationship with him, we're guilty. We stand before God condemned and judged. That's why he sent his son to take the punishment for our sins when he died on the cross. And most of us understand that. We believe that to be true. But see, most of us are also still buying into the lie of shame. Shame takes it a whole step further. While guilt says, I did something bad, shame says, I am bad. It attacks our identity. We feel guilty for something we've done, but we feel ashamed of who we are. And those are two very, very different things. Brene Brown, who's a well-known professor from the University of Houston, she's a revered expert on the topic of shame and vulnerability, has done a bunch of TED Talks and all these things. She says it like this. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. In other words, shame internalizes our guilt to the point of distorting our very identity. It leaves us in a state where we feel unlovable. Shame causes feelings of abandonment. I'm not worthy. Nobody could possibly want anything to do with me if they see who I truly am. I heard it described like this once, and I think this is really accurate. Shame is that feeling you have when you've had that really difficult conversation with someone and you've exposed some source of shame in your life. You've exposed that deepest, darkest secret. You've shared that with them, and they walk out of the room, and you're left standing there wondering, will they ever come back? Will they come back into the room? Will they ever talk to me again? Will there ever be relationship again? Why would they come back? Why would they talk to me now that they know this about me, now that they know who I am? See, shame is the distorted story that the enemy feeds us, and then we tell ourselves over and over and over and over. No jokes this time, in all seriousness. What is the shame that you carry? I'm not going to ask you to tell anybody. I'm not going to ask you to share anything or write it down or any of those things. I just want you to reflect for a moment. What is the shame that you carry? What is that secret in your life that causes that shame? It could be a hidden sexual addiction. It could be an eating disorder. It could be something that you did years ago that you're terrified that somebody else might find out or bring up or, or bring to the surface, expose you. Maybe it's that huge amount of debt that you picked up because you're trying to live above your means. Maybe it's the abuse that you endured from a friend or a family member. Maybe it's the inappropriate relationship that you've been covering up. There could be so many different things that it could be. The circumstances don't really matter. We all experience the same results from shame. Shame takes something that we did or something that has been done to us and it lies to us about who we are. Just an example, guilt comes from the sin that happens when a man looks lustfully at another woman. We know we've done something wrong. We've looked at someone inappropriately. But see, shame takes it another step further. Shame tells that same man that he's dirty, perverted, disgusting, that he can never be pure again in his thought life. Those are two very different things. Guilt, or maybe you would call it conviction, exposes our sin and it draws us back to God. But shame attacks our identity and attempts to bury us in the hopelessness of our sin. I was listening to a sermon this past week by Craig Rochelle on, on this topic, and he talks about three different aspects of what he called shame-based thinking. They were really enlightening to me, and I want to pass them on to you. The first is this. We can fall into the trap of perfectionism. Maybe you can relate to this. Shame-based thinking forces us to fall into the trap of perfectionism where we try to cover our shame by doing things perfectly so that we're good enough. 
You ever been there, done that, struggled with that, trying to be good enough? In fact, most of the time when this is going on, we struggle to admit our failures or our mistakes, and often we'll even fight with other people to justify what we've done or why we've done it when we know we're wrong. But we want to cover it up. We don't want anybody to see that because if I did something wrong, if I made a mistake, if I fell short, that failure equals more shame and less value in shame-based thinking. The second thing in shame-based thinking, we are critical of ourselves. We're highly aware of and we're focused on our shortcomings. I think most of us could say that, right? But then that leads us to become critical of others as well. How does that go? You point out in others the things that you see in yourself so hopefully they won't notice in you. Ever done that, been guilty of that? I don't want them to see that in me and we're highly aware of our own sins and our own shortcomings. If we point them out in somebody else, maybe they won't notice that I'm the same way. Maybe they won't notice I'm hypocritical. You've probably heard the phrase that hurt people hurt people. I think the same goes for shame. Shamed people shame other people. We tend to see our own sin and failures in everybody around us so easily. And to guard our own hearts, we point it off on them. And then the third, and this is probably the most detrimental in my estimation, shame-based thinking will lead to self-defeating thoughts that we use to shield ourselves from disappointment or pain. In other words, we focus on the worst possible outcome. Or as my favorite local counselor puts it, we catastrophize. You heard that word before? You take something that really isn't all that bad, but you make it terrible. Because somebody's telling a story, they're telling you things that are going on, and in your head, you're not even hearing the things they're saying. You're filling in all the blanks before they even get there. You've already answered all the questions, made up all the story, and now your life is over, it's destroyed, everything's terrible because of what they just had to say. And in reality, they might have been telling you something good, but you've made it terrible about you. You've catastrophized it. That kind of thinking sabotages relationships and it ruins opportunities that God puts before you, that things that could be amazing if our view wasn't so distorted. And while I'm sure we could all put ourselves in one of those categories, I know I could, I've got to tell you, that third one, that one's hard for me. Because not only have I been guilty of doing that at times, but I've watched some really close friends and family walk in that. And it's so hard because you see the person being trapped. When you're sitting on the outside looking in, it's so much easier to see it, as with anything, right? But you can look at the distorted thinking and you see the questions that are being answered wrong and the perceptions that are being seen wrong, and there's not anything you can do. It's like no matter how hard you try, you can't convince the person, hey, you're not looking at this right. You're not seeing it the right way. You answered the questions the wrong way. That's not what was intended. That's the power of shame. And it's how Satan attacks our mind and distorts our thinking. And see, as I share those three aspects of shame-based thinking, maybe you, like me, kind of notice a pattern that's emerging. Regardless of how we respond, when we're trapped by shame, the common thread that's woven into our thinking is that we're not enough. We're not good enough. We can't do enough. We're not valued. Nobody could possibly love me. But even more important, the thing that stands out to me is how the focus of all of our thinking in those three things is ourselves. You notice that? Everything points back to me. All about me. All about looking at me. All about protecting me. All about shielding me from things. All about me. Here's a very simple yet profound truth that many of us struggle to embrace. As long as I am focused on me, I will never be enough. 
I want you to hear that again. As long as I am focused on me, I will never be enough. The only way that we'll ever come, overcome shame in our lives is to shift our focus from ourselves to Christ. Instead of focusing on who or what we are not, we have to start focusing on who Christ is. If you don't know Christ, you're not walking in relationship with him, that's where it starts. That's where it has to start. But even as I look across the room, I realize many of you would say that you've been following Christ for years. You surrendered your heart a long time ago and you're following after him, you believe his promises, you believe his word, but yet, I would say there's way too many of us in this room that although we know we are forgiven, we're still living with shame-based thinking in our lives. You're still believing that you're someone that Christ says you're not. Your focus is on you and it has to shift to him. And I think one of the greatest examples that comes to my mind is the story of Peter and the interactions that you see between Peter and Christ right before the crucifixion and then again after the resurrection. There's this cool little story kind of tucked away in there. Some of Jesus' Jesus' final moments with his disciples, him and Peter are having some interaction. And like Peter has done over and over, Peter goes, I'll be with you to the end. I'm loyal. I'll never, you know, I'll always have your back. I'll never turn my back on you. I'll never deny you. And what's Jesus say to him? Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you'll deny me three times. And Peter, in several of the accounts, denies that again. I'll never deny you, Jesus. You're my Messiah. You're my Savior. You're my rabbi, my teacher. And if you've been watching The Chosen, you see how Peter is depicted through that, don't you? I think they did a great job of showing his character. He's that guy that acts long before he thinks most of the time. He's always in there, always loyal to a fault, ready to protect everybody, ready to do what needs to be done. And you see him react, and then Jesus is having to kind of guide and correct. Go, no, think about this. It's like this. But in this moment, you see Peter come out where he goes, I'll never deny you. I'll be loyal to the end. But yet we know that he does deny Jesus. Three times, in fact. In fact, we're told when he's led into the gate at the high priest's home where Jesus is being held right after he's arrested, he comes to the gate, he knocks, they go to let him in, and they go, aren't you one of his followers? And Peter responds, he lies. He says, no, I'm not. I'm not one of his followers. And he denies Christ. There's once. And not too long after that, that night, standing in the courtyard of the same house around a fire with some of the other servants, somebody else comes up to him. Aren't you one of Jesus' followers? Peter lies again. No, not me. That's not me. It's not me. He denies Christ for the second time. And then the third time, almost immediately following that, and this one grabs my attention, John 18, 26 and 27. But one of the household slaves, still at the same house, same setting, same night, one of the household slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. Now think about this. Don't you think that guy's gonna remember Peter? They just came to arrest Jesus and what's Peter do? He draws his sword, he reaches out and cuts a guy's ear off that Jesus then goes and heals, puts the ear back. Don't you think that guy's gonna remember Peter's face? He looks at him and says, didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? Peter's busted. This guy was there. He saw him. He knows he's a follower. And what's Peter do? He lies again. Says he denied it. And immediately, a rooster crowed. Put yourself in Peter's shoes in that moment. Think about what he's feeling. Think about the shame that has to overwhelm him in that moment. He's been kind of the self-proclaimed leader of the apostles all this time of Jesus' followers. He's always the one taking the lead and stepping out and getting them to follow him and, and do the next thing. And he's always the one protecting Jesus, always the one looking out for him, always the one that's boisterous and saying something, loyal to a fault. 
And he's made this huge proclamation about Jesus, I'll never deny you. And now three times, he's lied to people that don't even matter. People that he doesn't even know or have relationship with to say, no, I don't even know the guy. His rabbi, his Messiah, he's turned his back on him. Peter was completely exposed. He was a fraud. And I can only imagine the story that shame told Peter that night. Probably something like this, Peter, you're worthless. You're despicable. You're unlovable. There's no way that Jesus is gonna want anything to do with you again, ever. You said you were loyal. You said you'd never deny him, that you'd stand with him to the end, and now you've cast him out like he's nothing. But see, that's not the end of Peter's story. And I want you to see specifically how Jesus responded to Peter's denial. Because after Jesus was condemned, after he was crucified, after he was buried, and then he came back to life, was resurrected from the dead, we see this encounter that happens in Mark 16. There's a couple of the women who were following Jesus who go to the tomb where Jesus was buried and he'd been raised from the dead. And they have this encounter with an angel. Pick up with me in verse 5. Mark 16, verse 5. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And the women were shocked, but the angel said, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you before he died. Did you catch that? Go and tell his disciples, including Peter. Now this is the only gospel we read that phrase in. You read the four gospels, they all have this account, they all have this story, but it's all from different perspectives like you would expect. Four different guys seeing things four different ways. They share their account, but I don't think it's by mistake that Mark included that detail in his account. Go and tell the disciples, including Peter. Jesus wanted Peter to know that he was inviting him to come to Galilee like he had said to the disciples before. He wanted him to be there. He wanted him to be a part of that. Peter had denied Jesus three times. He'd been wallowing in shame, feeling completely unworthy, unwanted, but Jesus wasn't done with him. He wants to make sure he gets that message. So you skip over to John 21, and we see the encounter that happens between Jesus and Peter, and I love this. If you read the whole story, and I'll give you the real short version, the disciples have gone back to Galilee, and most of them have just kind of gone back to what they knew. It's like Jesus has died now. This is all over. We've done this ministry for three years. They're kind of lost trying to figure out what does this look like? What's it mean? So they go back to fishing, just kind of like they're picking up their old job and going back to life as normal. And they're out on the boat and they're fishing. And what happens? Jesus walks up to them on the shore. And just like you and I might do, we walk up to somebody, they're out fishing and you're, you're next to them on the bank and you call out, hey, you having any luck? And they respond, no, haven't caught a thing. And how's Jesus respond? He says, well, try throwing your nets on the other side of the boat. Yeah, right, Jesus. Come on, we've been fishing all night, haven't caught a thing, you want us to throw them on the other side of the boat like the fish are over there. Sound familiar? Seems like a story that's already happened once, right? When Jesus called them initially. He says, throw your nets on the other side of the boat, and they do. And they bring in this haul of fish that they can't even get the nets drug into the boat. They're having trouble getting them pulled up. And Peter looks up and realizes who's standing on the shore, who's calling to them. And so he jumps in the water, he swims to shore. The disciples and Jesus are all having breakfast together. There's Jesus had a campfire, cooking fish, doing his thing. And we see this conversation that happens. John 21, starting in verse 15. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, 
Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. And Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. You see the significance here? Jesus asked Peter three times if he loves him. Why three times? I mean, does he just think Peter's hard-headed and he doesn't get it? Well, yeah, probably, because I think Peter is. I, I can relate to him. I get it. He's stubborn. He's hard-headed. Sometimes he needs to be hit over the head with a two-before to figure it out. But I don't think that's the only reason. Jesus asked him three times because he wants Peter to know how loved he is. He wants to restore Peter. Think about it. Peter denied him three times the people, to people that didn't even matter. And how does Jesus respond? He responds by reminding him of his love for him three times in front of the people that matter most, in front of the people that he's done life with for the last three years and done ministry with and walked with. Jesus is restoring Peter. He's removing his shame. He's reinforcing over and over here. Peter is loved. He's valued. He still has an important role to play. Go and lead my people. Think about the context of what was just said there. Think about what Jesus just said to Peter. Peter has denied Jesus three times. He's blatantly rejected him, walked away from him, betrayed him. And then Jesus turns and calls him to be a pastor. That's what's happening here. He's saying, go and feed my sheep. Go lead my people. Be a leader of men. Don't let that escape you. See, in Peter's eyes, he was a failure. He was unworthy. But in Jesus' eyes, Peter was a broken man who was ready for restoration and for calling. See, I'd say all of our lives, we've had people speak shame into us. Unfortunately, it's probably even been Christ followers. Because guess what? People are people. We're all broken. We're all messed up. We say things we shouldn't say. We th say things we don't mean. And too many times we've had shame spoken into our lives. Shame on you. You've heard that phrase over and over probably. Shame on you. How dare you do that? How dare you say that? How dare you think that way? Shame on you. But see, what we see in this story is what Jesus is saying to us that's exactly the opposite. He's saying, shame off of you. Shame off you. Give me that shame and walk freely in the calling that I've given to you. I think the author of Hebrews got it right in 12, chapter 12, verse 2, when he says it like this. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he's seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. There are other translations that say that Jesus scorned the shame, and even others that say he despised the shame. Think about the deep word picture that's painted there. Jesus despised the shame that came with the crucifixion that he had to bear, but not just the shame of the cross. Think about how shameful that would have been for Jesus as a Jew. He's stripped down to a loincloth. He's had all of his dignity removed. 
Jews didn't do that. They didn't strip down and run around in public. You were never going to see them that way. So he stripped. He has a crown of thorns put on his head. He's beat. He's spit on. He has all these things that happen, people yelling things. He's rejected, and then he's hung in front of everyone. He's put on the cross, totally exposed, totally vulnerable, a place of shame. That was one of the things of crucifixion, to shame the criminal who was put on the cross so that everybody could walk by and spit on them and torment them and jeer at them and see what had happened, why they were there. But it goes a lot deeper than that because Jesus also despised the shame that was entangled in our sin that he bore on the cross. Think about it. Jesus was free of sin. The only man to ever walk the earth who did not sin, and yet he's put on trial and accused and said to be guilty and put on a cross for our sin and our shame. He despised the shame that came from all of the sin from the beginning of time where we read just now in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve all the way up to you and I. You've got Adam and Eve, you've got David. Think about the story of David and Bathsheba and the adultery that happened and the the, uh, murder that was committed. Think about what we just read with Peter of denying Christ. And there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stories that you can go through in Scripture that talk about the shame of sin and the shame that people walked in and felt. And then what about our shame? See, he even despised your whatever that is. You fill in the blank. But that's why he went to the cross. He went to the cross and he died to overcome our sin and our shame. But we have to allow him to overcome our shame. See, I I think as Christ followers, we're pretty good at giving Jesus our sin. We're pretty good at confessing things to go, hey, I did this, I'm sorry, forgive me. And we give him our sin. But are we giving him our shame as well? Are we taking that to him or are we still trying to hide that one little corner of our heart? Are we still trying to kind of sweep stuff under the rug and protect that and keep it safe and keep it hidden and keep it in the dark where nobody sees and nobody knows anything about it? Jesus died to save us from both. But for us to experience freedom from that, we have to keep our eyes on Jesus like Hebrews says. We have to shift our focus from who we are to who Christ is. And even Peter, and I love this, I love the the picture you see here, even after he's been restored, after Jesus has had this encounter with him, what happens next? Do you remember the rest of the story? In John 21, Jesus gives Peter a clue about how he's going to die, and he says, this is going to happen to bring glory to God. And instead of Peter just taking that in and going, cool, the way I'm going to die is going to bring glory to God, what's he do? He turns around and he looks at John, who's beside him, you know, the beloved apostle, he looks at John, and he goes, well, what's going to happen to him? You told me how I'm going to die. What's going to happen to him? And I love Jesus' response here. You see his love shine through in this. In verse 22, he replies, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. Isn't that how we always do? We always deflect and push it off to somebody else or or point another direction or try to avoid the thing that's being said. Jesus says something important to him. He goes, well, what about John? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus is basically saying, quit comparing, quit deflecting, quit pushing this off on somebody else, quit ignoring what's going on, quit looking at your pitiful circumstances, focus on me. Keep your eyes on me, follow me. See, the only way we'll find healing from our shame is to take our eyes off of us, off of ourselves, and put our focus on Christ. The more I look at me, 
the worse I am. Isn't that true? Think about it. The more you look at your life, the more you look at the things that are going on in your life, the worse you are. But the more you look at Christ, the more hope you'll find. And just like he restored Peter, Jesus wants to restore you and me from our places of shame. We spend so much time trying to hide and cover our shame, but the truth is Jesus has already seen every single one of our worst moments. Who are we fooling to think that we're going to hide something in the corner of our heart from God who created that heart? As if he can't see it already. He's already seen all of our worst moments. In fact, try to wrap your head around this. He's already seen all your worst future moments. He stands outside of time and space. He can see it all. He knows how you're going to screw up in the future. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what's going to cause shame for you. He's already seen it. And he's not afraid to walk back into the room. He's not afraid to come back and be with you and have more conversation and love you and walk with you. He sees you at your worst and he loves you. I started off today sharing that shame brings out our worst fear. The fear that we'll be exposed for who we really are, but the truth is, even that's a lie of the enemy. See, shame exposes who we think we are because our thinking is distorted. But when we put our eyes on Christ and we allow him to restore us, we begin to see ourselves the way that he sees us. We begin to see ourselves as a reflection of him to the world around us because that's the truth. That's how he created us. That's what he's calling us to. That's what he's doing when he restores us. When we're walking in shame, we're walking in distorted thinking. Band, you guys, come on up. As I close out this morning, my prayer is that you allow the words that I'm about to read to you from Romans 8 to just soak into your heart. I pray that it'll become your new perspective of how Christ sees you, including your shame. This is Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 35. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we're killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Did you hear that last phrase? Nothing. That's the right translation. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Jesus. It doesn't matter what shame you're carrying. It doesn't matter what secret you've been hiding. It cannot separate you from his love. He will still walk back into the room. He will still love you. He will still walk with you and do life with you and bring hope and restoration. Focus on Christ. Quit hiding. Bring your shame into the light. Allow it to be exposed. Allow 
some of his people to walk with you. Allow him to walk with you. This morning as we wrap up, if you'd like somebody to pray with you, I would encourage you, come back to Next Steps. Jamie and Kelly Bennett are back there. I'm gonna be back there as well. We would love to pray with you, talk with you, help you take some next steps. If you're uncomfortable coming and talking to one of us, you also can text the word next to our TBA Connect number. It's there on the screen. That's gonna send you a link to our digital connection card. There's a comment section. You can write whatever you need to write to give us an opportunity to pray for you and follow up with you. There's also some drop-down boxes there if you want some more information. It's an easy way to do that. Here's something else I would encourage you to do, though. Sometimes walking out the journey of of finding healing from shame means you need a safe place to start. Because not only do you need to bring your shame into the light with Christ, but you need to bring it into the light with another trusted believer. Someone that you can walk with that will walk with you, that you know will love you and walk with you through whatever you're going through. And so a great safe place for you to start. If you're not already in a D group or connected with a small group somewhere, CR meets here every Friday night. They start at 7 o'clock, 6.30. They have coffee and stuff out there that you can come and enjoy. Fellowship at 7 o'clock. They meet in here. They have small groups afterwards. And it is a place where there's a group of people gathered who know what it's like to walk in shame. But they also know what it's like to expose that shame and find freedom. And they will accept you as you are and give you a safe place to come and bring that into the light. And I would encourage you to start there. Start with CR on Friday nights and begin to expose those places in your heart that have held you captive for who knows how long. And allow God to do something different in you to bring healing out of those places so that you're not just experiencing forgiveness of sin, but you're experiencing freedom from the shame that Satan throws at us because of our sin. Would you stand with me as we pray and the band comes back to lead us in worship? God, thank you that you love us no matter what. Thank you for that reminder that Paul gives us in Romans of how great your love is for us, that no matter what we've revealed to you, no matter what we've exposed to you, no matter the things that we've walked in, we've done, or that has been done to us, the the dark places of our hearts, God, no matter whether we've been trying to hide it or cover it up for a day or for the last 50 years, It doesn't matter. It's still not dark enough that you can't do something with it. God, help us to be willing to open those ugly places of our heart to allow you to come in and bring freedom and bring healing and bring your light. God, I just want to pray for courage right now. I know that when we talk about topics like this, it often strikes a deep chord and it's hard for us to wrestle through. And, and while we know exactly what shameful things we may carry, it's so hard to come to grips with exposing that or bringing it to the light. So God, I pray for courage that you would allow people to step forward this morning, to bring that to the light, to find someone to share with, to, to spend some time praying and taking some next, next steps to commit to coming to CR on Friday nights, to commit to plugging into a D group or a small group or somewhere safe that they can expose that and begin to find healing, that you can do a work in their lives. God, you did not create us to walk and live in shame. You did not create us to hide from you, but you created us to walk in communion with you. Help us to be willing to risk whatever we have to risk to restore that communion. Thank you for your amazing love for us. Help us to rest in that today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.